0: AVXL episode 199 was recorded on March 25th, 2023. Ratings accelerated panel aging. They've got an update. More consistent brightness for oily DTVs. Samsung's S95C reviews are coming in hot and heavy. Benchmark Media's got some slick new audio calculators. Apple's classical music app Explained. New AVRs from Sony and quite a bit more. Do us a favor. Email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you. Seriously, thank you. Thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. And remember, for the folks that get to hang out with us at the Patreon levels that do a live video hangout, that is going to be the 28th of March. So come join us. Check patreon.com slash avxl for the information on when and how to sign in.
1: Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out.
0: Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul.
1: Ignorant weasels.
0: Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. So, I mentioned AXPONA, going to AXPONA, looking forward to AXPONA, slightly terrified by AXPONA, because apparently, along with a fairly hefty headphone section, there's something in the neighborhood of 200 rooms planned in the hotel there. Oh, my. In Schaumburg, Illinois. This is a uh, one-day event, two-day weekend. Two days. Well, three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'll be up there Friday, Saturday. Amber Rubarth's playing uh, Saturday night. She's a fantastic singer and guitar player uh, who I got introduced to via a headphone demo several years ago uh, and have really enjoyed her work, um, especially songs from the 17th Ward. Pretty sure it's songs from the 17th Ward. It's good stuff. She'll be playing Saturday night as I sit here and typing in songs from the 17th Ward... And yes, Amber Rebarth, Songs of the 17th Ward. Good. My memory's not completely going, so that level of old age is not attacked.
1: <laughs> I do enjoy mixing a little bit of pleasure with the business. so uh, Especially if you go into an audio-related trade show, so to speak, and it's nice yeah. when they actually have somebody showing off
0: their audio chops. I'm going to be rude and say it's always nice when there's somebody showing off their audio chops that doesn't, you know... Uh, You know what? I am delighted to see anyone who's performing, period, stop. (laughs) Be gracious, Mr. Norton. It's a short, violent life if you're not careful. Um, I digress. But I'm going to try to do a hangout Friday night. More details on that will go out on Twitter and uh, for anybody in the Chicago area. And by the way, if you want to hear a bunch of audio gear, Axepona is a fantastic way to do that. Shifting gears ratings they've been doing uh basically they've been doing accelerated testing or accelerated aging testing of panels and what's going on i mean they're i guess they're four months in at this point and they're given a major update or a minor update to what they're seeing pretty major update and if you're
1: interested in the longevity testing of some of the major brands out there this is the test to be paying attention to On their YouTube page, they presented a recent update on their testing as it's going currently, including a list of all the TVs, and this is from every major manufacturer you could imagine in terms of uh, Hisense, LG, Samsung, Sony, and TCL, Vizio, and a few others thrown into the mix as well. Uh, I want to say there's at least 80-plus televisions they're testing currently, running them approximately 18 hours a day. And then the rest of the time off, all being controlled with Raspberry Pi devices that give them the ability to (laughs) do some automation in terms of having them all turn on at the same time, uh, display the content they want to display and have them turn off to stimulate the use. Also, they're paying attention to things like, hey, what's the temperature in the room? And effectively just trying to see what happens when you really kind of, I don't want to say abuse, but. When you are running one of these sets day in and day out at full bore uh, and in this case their their main content of choice is CNN due to the fact that it's kind of interesting. one it's a it gives you a mix of content but at the same point it also has some very static elements like their very bright white ticker at the bottom of the screen along with their very bright white logo which what a wonderful way to test for burn in yes <laughs> and that's really kind of the big one right now and uh, if you i'll put a link to the video that they have uh, going over this four month update it's kind of eye opening they have discovered a few things they've had some failures uh in particular as far as oleds go burn in is definitely still a thing and it mm-hmm. does seem that at least with the the testing so far is that LG OLEDs in particular seem to do better with that challenging CNN-style content with the bright white logos and tickers on it than the Quantum Dot OLEDs out there, namely the Samsung display panel used by Sony, Samsung Electronics, and others. Uh, and even differences in LG OLEDs' own panels used by other manufacturers. In this case, they showed off how Sony OLEDs seem to do worse than the a similar panel that you would find in a TV from LG when it came to burn in uh, mitigation and uh, they're basically discovering the how and the why and it's just interesting if you're into this kind of stuff at all and there were failures across the board from every brand uh, currently represented in some way there were things like a a dead column of pixels uh, a TV that refused to turn them back on after turning off and uh, like I mentioned you can look at pretty much any of these brands and find a failure there in one way or another. I'm finding this is just a a pretty fascinating look. It is definitely something I would not want to be doing to my own TV, but I'm glad to see somebody actually doing this to a large sample of retail purchased units just to get some feedback and to see what the real world-ish conditions are that can cause some of these failures or just uh, what happens when a
0: failure does occur. This reminds me of a conversation I had uh, several years ago with Dell when we were talking about, I was like, hey, what's the best way to make sure your desktop monitor stays alive? And the person I was talking to kind of laughed and said, well, the worst thing you can do is run a screensaver and leave your monitor on 24-7. They're like, you know, we consider a monitor end of life when it's reduced to 50% of its original factory brightness. That takes about you know, X number of years if you leave it on 24-7, right? And if you, you turn it off at the end of your 8 or 10-hour workday, then it lasts considerably longer. If you are prone to leaving, you know, the weather channel or something on 24-7, it might behoove you to do that on a cheap disposable TV and not maybe in the fancy TV in the viewing room.
1: I had a similar incident with my previous cell phone and my current cell phone. On my <laughs> On my last that. cell phone, I was prone to watching a lot of video on that smaller display. You consider the price of a good cell phone nowadays and that can easily top four figures. I decided with my new cell phone, it's like if I'm in a mode where I'm going to be watching video and I have other displays available, uh, readily available in the nearby area. Maybe flip on the TV or an LCD panel, say, for my workstation, instead of just having my phone grinding a very nice OLED panel uh, in that miniature display. Keep that in mind. Yeah, like you mentioned, as Dell claimed uh, for their LCDs, even LED-backlit displays like your LCDs out there can be aged into becoming dimmer and dimmer just by their use. Something like a screensaver... That's not the way to do it. It would be far better to just simply set up your power, right? turn off that display or sleep it rather than run a screensaver.
0: There's a lot of discipline in our house because, you know, we've had projectors for years and bulbs are expensive. So, you know, I remind everybody, if you're done, shut it off. I think the other thing that Ratings was talking about recently was There was a bunch of questions about the SDR brightness for the Samsung S95C QD OLED. And what they found is that large bright scenes, big summertime scenes, I think of skiing, right? You know, a giant blast of white on the monitor. The TV can get warm enough that it throttles back the brightness of the display. It's a protective mode. Um, They also pointed out that the room they were in was 26 degrees Celsius, uh, which is 78.8 degrees Fahrenheit per those of us who don't speak celsius to the audience and that they were hitting temperatures of 45 degrees celsius or 113 degrees fahrenheit on the panel itself so basically when the panel hit 45 c or 113 degrees fahrenheit they started throttling back the brightness in sort of a protective mode they also found out you know they basically they were like okay they put it in a colder room with industrial fans and windows open i'm quoting ratings on this right now and the tv ran significantly colder and the brightness wasn't limited So if you keep your house hot, be aware. (laughs) Or if your TV happens to be exposed to
1: direct sunlight, there's another just something you can do. Or at least when you're doing that setup, be aware of potential issues like that. The cooler you can run your electronics, generally speaking, the better they're going to or the longer they're going to last for sure. And speaking of OLED brightness in general. Mr. Vincent Teo over at the HDTV Test channel posted a video a while back showing how there is an auto-dimming feature within LG OLED TVs that could result in content that features longish scenes that are dark from becoming way too dark. LG is aware of this, and Vincent has reported that LG is fast-tracking a fix that will affect, I believe, the C2 G2 and the upcoming C3 and G3 panels. It's kind of ridiculous. Uh, They were showing, I forget which movies they were or what TV shows they were, but these featured long scenes that were in very dark environments and the TV would start auto dimming after a few minutes within these scenes because there was no other bright content appearing and it would become so dark as to literally become ridiculous in terms of watching it. But uh, anyway, there's a firmware tweak that you should expect to see coming soon for your LG OLED TVs,
0: which I'm happy. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So a while back, we mentioned uh, Andrew Jones had left ELAC. We hadn't seen him for a while, and we mentioned not too long ago that he had resurfaced at MoFi Electronics. And so MoFi Electronics is the gear part of uh, MoFi uh, or Mobile Fidelity Sound Labs. They make a lot of audiophile vinyl and SACDs. Some of the more recent titles on the website are Bruce Springsteen's Greetings from Asbury Park, Warren Zivon's Excitable Boy, Run DMC's uh, Run DMC, King of Rock and Raising Hell ton more uh, if you're curious about vinyl or sacd go over to mofo.com check them out uh mr jones's first speaker for mofi is the source point 10 uh it's a two-way stand mount loudspeaker that's a fancy way of saying a bookshelf speaker and it's got a 10-inch woofer with a concentric mounted one and a quarter inch soft dome tweeter so concentric uh you know woofer tweeter designs are not something new from mr jones um a 10-inch woofer with a fairly hefty dome tweeter in the middle of it, is something different for him. Mofi humbly calls it, quote, the finest sounding design of engineer Andrew Jones's storied career, end quote. So, um, (laughs) where Elac's concentric design's Tended to be power hungry. And we should talk about the Iron Law next week, uh, which discusses low end output efficiency and speaker size. It's one of those you get two out of three. But uh, where ELAC's concentric designs tended to be fairly power hungry, these are 91 dB efficient, which is nice. It means they're easy to drive, it means yeah. you don't need as much amplifier. It means, you know, there's a lot of good stuff going on there don't hate me mr jones i was laughing when i saw these i've seen a lot of diy speakers built around 10-inch drivers uh like an eminence 10cx um, and those have tweeters that basically screw into the back of them and, and don't don't again like i was giggling when i saw this because i i keep circling around this diy speaker project that eminence put together years ago that has a there's a lot of love for it and that particular 10cx With a tweeter that screws into the back of it is something that's been the heart of a lot of DIY speaker uh, designs over the years these drivers however these are custom designed by mr jones uh the one and a quarter inch tweeter is bigger than what i've seen on a lot of pro audio or diy speakers in that 10 inch range uh and one of the big things is when you look at it you know there's some interesting stuff going on with the face of the speaker i'm going to quote mofi sculpted swept back facets of the front baffle reduce the diffraction response errors typically encountered in conventional flat baffle speakers so essentially they kind of put it on a pedestal, right? The speaker's at the center. Go to, you know, we got a link in the show notes so you can go to it and take a look at what it looks like. But essentially, you know, there's like one inch MDF on the entire speaker except for the front, which is two two inches and it's sculpted and it kind of puts the speaker out in front and there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about there. Very cool. Yeah, they have traditional corrugated baffles on that 10-inch speaker, and uh, they are 46 pounds each. Let me say it again with oh. a 2-inch front panel. So these are fairly stiff, non-resonant speakers. Um, so one of the issues with with large woofers with a concentric tweeter buried in the center is, is things get kind of peculiar as you get off-axis. Um, based on the measurements and listening by John Atkinson over at Stereophile.com, You know, Mr. Jones has solved that problem for this particular speaker. There's a fantastic discussion with Mr. Jones about what he was doing there, um, much to do with the waveguide on the tweeter, essentially how the tweeter interacts with the driver itself. If you're under that on speakers, uh, the link to stereo file is in there. Um, You know, one of the things that is more opaque to me is the twin drive magnet system Uh, quoting MoFi's press materials or their their website. uh, Quote, Jones selected high-flux neodymium magnets for the woofer and tweeter that are precisely coupled to create a compound effect. Each aids the other in driving the flux across the woofer and tweeter gaps. Um, At some point, I will dig in far enough into the physics on that to make it make sense to me or not, but I will try mightily. Uh, They are $3,700 a pair and I'm looking forward. I'm really hoping to hear those at Expona. Uh, Measurements of those are up on Stereophile.com. When you look at it, uh, they look like they should be a bit bright, uh, but ears on testing says they don't sound as bright as the measurements might suggest. It's not a massive uptick at the high end, but a little bit of one. More importantly, that, you know, the 42 hertz to 20,000 hertz frequency response claim, I think that's what they say on the website, uh, looks fairly legit, especially going down to 42 hertz, which I was delighted and surprised by. A couple of big ports on the back of that. And of course, a large woofer is not a guarantee of low bass, dot, dot, dot. However, Mr. Jones likes some thump, um, and they, they have this sort of uh, bump around 100, 125 hertz that I've seen in a lot of Mr. Jones' speaker designs. It tends to make kick drums particularly impactful and meaningful. So... You know, I also was highly amused. Uh, part of MoFi's marketing on this is, these aren't speakers that only perform adequately in one or two music types. And I laugh because that's been my goal with speakers' suggestions for as long as I've been talking to people about speakers is a speaker. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you have a speaker that sounds fantastic with your particular person with a violin and that's all you listen to, great. My problem is, is I want something that will do, you know, quartets and jazz and hold up to rage against the machine without collapsing. So right. it's a thing, people. <laughs> and these look like they will do that. Uh, if I get to hear my next Pona, I will tell you what I thought. I'm going to
1: check out that Stereophile article. I am curious just to see speaker designs that expand the high-frequency information as much as possible. And you see someone like, say, a Sonos. They will add a second tweeter and angle them apart from each other in order to to widen that sweet spot, so to speak. And in this case... It looks like they're using not only the the design in terms of how the speakers are nested within one another. In addition to that, the uh, the waveguide itself. I got
0: several fantastic books about speaker design. There's some definite <laughs> voodoo there it, that I am not hip to. <laughs> there's there's science. There's voodoo. It mostly comes down to science. I mean, I think it was Brent Butterworth who said several years ago, he was experimenting with tuning headphones. And his statement was like, look, you can download a free application and run some numbers into it and DIY a speaker that's going to actually sound way better than you think it should, given you made it in your basement, right? Uh, or your garage or wherever you make things. Headphones are way harder than that. As you start looking at DIY speakers or all the different ways speakers are designed, man, I love it when, when there's two speaker designers that are basically doing the exact opposite thing with very, very similar drivers. And you're just like, okay, I'm just going to listen and measure and we'll see how this holds out. But it's 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 interesting to watch. There's a lot of ways to skin the speaker cat, so to speak. Very cool. Yeah. Cat just looked at me like, what? <laughs>
1: Nice. (laughs) Hey, a quick follow-up to my love of all things OLED as far as displays go. I had been looking for reviews, uh, full-blown reviews, of the S95C, the brand-new QD OLED, the flagship QD OLED from Samsung Electronics, and, of course, the good folks at ratings. I'm just going to keep piling on the love here. They have their full review posted. They mention right off the top that, yes, it has superb color and very wide viewing angles. But can it hit the 2,000 nits that Samsung Display was hinting at during CES uh, back in January? And uh, not quite, actually. These TVs, as built by Samsung Electronics, are really aggressively doing automatic brightness limiting. And in this case, they are sticking to about a 1,300-nit peak brightness for that S95C still quite bright, that's still pretty punchy, and you combine that with a good anti-reflective screen, sure, it's not 2,000 nits, I think the panel might be capable of it, but when Samsung Electronics decided to craft the S95C, they said, you know what, we're going to use that aggressive automatic brightness limiter to keep it at something that we expect to help the TV last a little bit longer. And bringing up Mr. Vincent Teo once again, actually, he had an early look at some of the new C3 and G3 panels at an event LG held in Europe recently. While digging into these TVs, he took a look within the service menus and found that there are a couple of features that used to be exposed within the service menus that are no longer being exposed by LG Electronics. In particular, something called Temporal Peak Luminance Control, which is effectively an auto dimming control for OLEDs. That particular feature was actually related to the previous thing we were just talking about where a dark scene would get even darker over time. And something called global sticky reduction, which is I think a fantastic (laughs) name for any particular feature. This actually reduces the screen luminance when a portion of the screen is displaying a fixed image for some time without changing. Uh, You could think of your static logos like that. We were just talking about that CNN logo a little while ago. Uh, Anyway, LG is not exposing these controls to disable these functions within the service menu. People were actually using access to the service menu to disable these controls in order to fix these two issues if you didn't want this happening. LG did say that they will somehow make this uh, available to be disabled for people using these in a professional environment where you absolutely cannot have this happening. Vincent also mentioned too that They were doing this and locking down the service menus more so nowadays simply because folks were going in there and actually changing up the identifier for the panel itself from something like, say, going from a C3 to the more premium G3 panel. Simply by changing that function or changing that label within the service menu, you were getting, quote unquote, better performance out of that panel just by doing that one tweak within the TV itself. While I would understand LG not wanting someone to take a uh, mid-tier TV like the C3. I hate even calling it mid-tier. It's such a nice panel. But converting that into something closer to the G3 just by making a few tweaks within the service menu. This Mm -hmm. way, by eliminating some of these controls within the panel. Well, they're making it harder to do so if it's even possible at all. So we'll see once more people get these in their hands and have a chance to go digging through those. Menus you normally shouldn't be accessing anyway. Uh, it's all just more interesting to me just to see that there is kind of a low-key battle, you could say, between <laughs> between the people that own these panels wanting to seek out the very best possible performance versus LG's desire to make sure that, you know what, we put these functions in place to control luminance in specific conditions uh, in order to preserve the longevity of the panel. And it kind of goes back and forth clearly. I am just thrilled just to have these new panels that are actually pushing well above a thousand nits nowadays and uh, for an oled that's pretty great and i personally would not recommend actually disabling any of these functions that manage auto dimming and other features like that just to protect your investment as long as possible i'm not willing to hot rod my my brand new oled at least at least that first (laughs) during that first year of ownership (laughs) Get a few years on it
0: and then maybe i want to go play with it a little bit go ahead but anyway yeah maybe run the factory warranty out sony has announced i think their first 8k and 4k 120 avrs and uh most of them are targeted at custom installers ranging from 1100 to three thirty three hundred uh one the str am 1000 uh it's 900 7.2 channel avr aimed at consumers It's interesting because they're all apparently using Sony's new 360 spatial sound mapping technology, which... uh so you run the Sony Digital Cinema Auto Calibration, takes that data, and it can create phantom speakers to give you a, a more surround, soundy effect. Curious to hear that in real life. Um, they all support HDR10, HLG, Dolby Vision. And if you have uh, one of the Sony Bravia XR TVs with the acoustic center on them, the ones that that have they basically vibrate the panel to give you audio or well, is it the panel itself or behind the panel? It doesn't really matter. Um, but these new AVRs will combine that acoustic center sync uh, or use acoustic center sync uh, to work with the panel and your center channel to give you the most realistic or the... the Basically, as center-to-center channel experiences you're going to get unless you have something like I do, which is a speaker behind your projection screen. Um, Those are starting to ship at the end of March uh, through early April, and curious to see some reviews and some performance looks at those, because I don't think Sony's done a new AVR in a very long time, so I was kind of shocked and delighted to see that.
1: Very cool, and it is kind of fun Mm -hmm. to actually see on some of their premium TVs, their Bravia TVs, where you actually do have a speaker output. It is available for use with an AVR like this one that is ready to go. It's an input, right? Oh, good point.
0: The Acoustic Center Sync or S-Center Speaker Input. So that's pretty slick. Hey, I had a quick mention for an
1: ATSC 3.0 TV tuner that popped up in the news last week. I believe the company is ADTH or ADTH.com. They have a... ATSC 3.0 USB receiver and what jumped out at me was the fact that well I'm like why would you be mentioning a USB product for a television and they are considering actually using a USB port on a TV to add that compatible tuner so you're not taking up an HDMI port with an external tuner box. I thought that was a neat idea. I am just curious to see how many if any TVs are currently compatible with a device like that, where you can literally plug that tuner into a TV that doesn't have one built in already for ATSC 3.0, a.k.a. next-gen, and take advantage of that over-the-air broadcast of high-quality content. If you happen to live within the uh, appropriate city or place that's actually broadcasting (laughs) an ATSC 3.0 signal, let alone, I don't think anybody anywhere at least here in north america is doing like regular 4k broadcasts or hdr broadcasts yet it's it's taking way longer than expected to actually get this deployed out to the public in general i mean even here in the bay area of california we have next to nothing regarding atsc 3.0 let alone anything being regularly broadcast in 4k or hdr over the airwaves anyway anyway I just thought it was a neat product. I'll put a link to it. Uh, I assume this would work just fine with a compatible computer, of course. But if I could take advantage of a USB port on a TV to add a tuner and have it somehow be compatible maybe with an app or... I'm not sure. uh, I just thought this was a neat idea. And it would save, I think... More value TVs where somebody wanted to add this as a feature. It would be an affordable way, a more affordable way to do it, in addition to not sacrificing perhaps a limited selection of HDMI inputs on a TV in order to get that done as well.
0: Nice. Yeah. Not too long ago, we talked about uh, a couple of new desktop type or or, or modest-sized amplifiers, super affordable, like $350, $300 amps. One of them was the Gallerhorn uh, that shit brought out. And uh, P.M. Turner Jr. tweeted uh, in response to me, and it's CC uh, shit and audio precision, what sort of quality speakers might the galler horns be able to power? Any ideas? My response was really simple. It is all about speaker efficiency, right? Uh, right. If you have a, a speaker that's, that's measured at 86 decibels uh, at one watt, at one speaker rated 86 dB, one watt, one meter, Uh, and I'm going to oversimplify. I'm not going to talk about, you know, the difference between sitting three feet from the speaker and 18 feet from the speaker. Um, at the moment, but essentially it means if you feed a single watt into the speaker, you will get an 86 dB SPL sound pressure level uh, one meter from the speaker. Now you bump that up to five watts and you're going to take it to about 93 decibels SPL, which is loud enough for hearing damage in under an hour. If you have a speaker, for example, like one of the pairs I have, uh, that is like 92 or 93 decibels uh uh, or, or rated at like 93 dB, one watt, one meter, that means they are pretty delete expletive loud Uh, if you, you know, pump a watt into them <laughs> and they get significantly louder fairly fast as you pump more wattage into them. There's kind of a law of diminishing returns on this. I'm not going to get deep into the, the reason why there are massively, epically powerful amps out there. This depends, right? If you're using speakers on a desktop where your ears are three feet from the speakers or in a living room where you're 12 feet away from the speakers, right? If you have an 86 dB efficient speaker, um, if you're sitting 12 feet from it, it's going to need 13 watts to hit the same levels you'll hit at one watt when you're sitting three feet away from it. You know, something to think about, and part of the reason I brought that up is because Benchmark Media just uh, released or or put on their website a whole audio calculator section. And they did a whole blog about it, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And they said, look, you may want to answer system-level questions, such as, how loud will my audio system play? Will my audio system produce audible noise? Will my audio system produce audible distortion? How will my audio components work together as a system? Now, they make some pretty sophisticated high-end audio products over at Benchmark, including the AHB2 amplifier, which is one of the cleanest amplifiers that's ever been made and fairly powerful, too. But they have a ton of calculators up there, some of which are specific to Benchmark products. Others, you know, like the gain calculator or... Uh, the THD calculator, make it easy to, for example, shift between percentage THD and decibels THD, which is something I actually used recently as I was trying to figure out some stuff there. So if you want to nerd out, you want to learn, uh, it is worth taking some time over at benchmarkmedia.com slash blogs slash calculators. Uh, Very cool. It's good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Actually, it's it's nice of them to put that out there. So. Props to Benchmark and also for making some very badass audio gear. Hey, I wanted to give a quick shout out to the The Hookup
1: YouTube channel. They did an excellent ultra short throw screen comparison and a shootout. And I recommend anybody who is thinking about adopting an ultra short throw projector or upgrading a screen to give this video a watch. He covers a majority of different technologies in terms of the screen materials, uh, price points from about 400 to $1,300, and I believe he compares eight screens in total for things like brightness, contrast, black level, clarity, and, of course, ambient light rejection, which seems to be the uh, thing you're looking for when you're dealing with an ultra short throw in a room with some room lighting, so to speak. Uh, He even gets into some of the screen technologies like lenticular and Fresnel screens, and I don't even want to give away what the overall winner was, but it was a winner by a significant margin, and it wasn't the most Mm. expensive screen either. It was pretty damn cool. Oh, I love that. It was just nice to see how much of an effect that different screen materials can have on your viewing experience, and it's something to definitely keep in mind, especially for... The short throw, ultra short throw crowd out there uh, for the screens tested again. That's the hookup on YouTube. A wonderful channel for many different technologies to watch. Uh, but in particular, I just give it a big thumbs up for the the projector screen comparison slash shootout for the light rejecting models he tested. Some really really good stuff. And of course, I will have a link to
0: that in the show notes as well. I was just I just muted my mic to laugh uh, because I I took a moment to type into, uh, along with the Hoffman's Iron Law note for episode 200 or next episode, the discussion of sensitivity versus efficiency and if they mean the same thing for speakers, which is probably something that will take forever to sort out, but I will endeavor mightily to make it simple. Um, Something we didn't talk about last week, uh, Asus has a new projector, the ProArt A1, which is Calman Verified, uh, which is something I don't think we've seen a lot of. It's an LED projector. It's uh, $1,319 MSRP. Um, they did a nice review, a great review by uh, Sammy Prescott Jr. over at ProjectorCentral.com if you're curious. But the two things to think about this projector is, quote, considerable out-of-box color accuracy and that it measured 2002 ANSI lumens in standard mode, which is uh, fairly bright. I, you know, they, they went so far as to call it extremely bright over at uh, ProjectorCentral.com. It does have 3D support. It's a good review. A couple of things that are definitely missing from this projector, I'm going to send you over to ProjectorCentral.com to learn about those, one of which I will say uh, I find annoying, and the other of which I will say would make it impossible for me to use uh, a projector in my current viewing environment. So ProjectorCentral.com, show them some love on that uh, review definitely i love the fact that that's an
1: led light source so you have that longevity yeah in addition to decent color saturation depending on you know what leds they decided to go with but uh, it's nice to see something pushing at least in excess of 2000 ansi lumens in
0: a standard mode for that yummy oh man I was laughing. You were like, this HDMI testing thing from last week is kind of long, the cable testing thing. And I said, well, yeah, because I want to avoid, there's some follow-up questions we're totally going to get if we don't talk about this stuff. Yeah. And invariably, somebody ignored some of the stuff we talked about and tweeted about
1: it. I was just poo-pooing the continuity testers that were popping up right. that people were considering. And then I realized that, you know what, if you had an in-wall cable where you can't easily test it so to speak that might be one quick and easy way just to simply hook up a continuity tester to see if there's a break in in an installed cable and that might be one good reason to do that where you can't simply just swap out a cable for a known quote-unquote good cable that was one thing i didn't i shouldn't have been as harsh on the quote-unquote affordable testers although those continuity testers were all in like the 40 to $40 40 plus dollars just for that alone.
0: They occasionally <laughs> show up in the $20 range, but it's challenging, right? Cuz one of the issues people are like, "Oh, I want to know if this cable will work with, you know, my Apple TV or my Roku or my Blu-ray player and my AVR and will it deliver XYZ?" Well, the truth is, unless you're buying a quality cable from a known source, you won't really know. You know, if you if you're pulling an HDMI cable out of out of a bin, the testers Rob's talking about, they'll tell you it's it has a functional connection. It will not tell you the bandwidth it'll hassle it'll actually handle. So you know we mentioned have a known good cable on hand, and and you know Rob has some very specific ideas about that.
1: When you're shopping for any HDMI cable nowadays, I would simply right. skip right ahead and get something that is actually rated for 48 gigabit it actually says that somewhere in the packaging that is right. telling you that it is rated for the fastest bandwidth currently in use today for sources right. like a game console that can push 4k 120 and like we mentioned last week if it's six feet or shorter just about any cable will seem to work with those standards as well if if you can actually use a six-foot cable or shorter as well. And I mentioned my my love of fiber HDMI cables, and those really are ideal for long distances as they feature LED or laser converters on each end with the fiber optic cable in the middle. However, my pricing uh, might have been a little optimistic. I was saying that don't pay more than two (laughs) bucks a foot. Well, it can get up closer to three, actually, for a good fiber cable anyway, so yeah you can pay a little bit more for it and if you are having issues with a particular cable at a particular high resolution or a high color depth try reducing that like say if you were running a particular device maybe a PC at 4K reduce the resolution to 1440p or 1080p or 720p60 and see if it suddenly fixes the issue and then you can then determine hopefully that that by that little bit of troubleshooting that you know what, if I reduce the bandwidth on the cable, it starts to work. Maybe I need a cable that supports right. uh, the bandwidth more clearly or just is known to support that bandwidth at the given distance
0: you're trying to go. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that's best solved with a fresh cable with a legit hologram from a legit source as your sort of standard. When you look at HDMI problem-solving... Um, I found this graphic from the CIE group called, Why is my HDMI signal dropping out? And I'll post a link to the article in the show notes. But the first thing they recommend you do is changing your HDMI channel into the monitor to make sure it's not an issue with uh, that port, the EDID, the extended display identification Data on that port, the HDCP connection on that port, and like I mentioned before, the port itself. First, it's changed the HDMI channel, then it's checked the cable distance, then it's checked the cabling connection, then changed the input, check the HDMI resolution, check if the cable's faulty, you know, something I've picked up from some live events folks I've worked with recently, they hate HCMI. I mean, like with a fiery passion of a thousand suns. Uh, so do a lot of folks in the AV integration industry, both on the commercial side and the residential side. It is a miserable physical cable. It is difficult to keep alive. It is finicky. And it's a spec with too much wiggle room that mostly exists because studios wanted an encrypted signal chain, a.k.a. HDCP. It's not my favorite cable. Um, and it is critical for everything we do in home theater. Uh, you know, and you know, I mentioned some articles on Blue Jeans cable last week. Another one to get deep on is uh, what's the matter with HDMI, which is a, a great kind of walkthrough on why you know it is a difficult cable. Little tiny wires that have to be run in a very particular way and and, and you know I, I gotta say uh, Rob's got a good point if you're dealing with any kind of distance and you want to get you know, uh the full 48 gigabit yeah (laughs) just get a fiber cable and by the way remember those are directional so you know if you're running 40 feet of cable make sure you're plugging the right end of the avr because you aren't going to want to yank that thing back out and do it over again conduit (laughs) conduit is your friend
1: whenever possible yes especially if you're doing a new or uh remodeled
0: installation keep that in mind oh my goodness um I know there's a couple of people out there in the audience that are deep in the classical musical scene. Um, for those of you who aren't and are trying to figure out why Apple created a classical or a Apple Music Classical app, at Jesse Char tweeted a fantastic thread on it. Um, quote, as a classically trained cellist, composer, former Apple employee, and CEO of a design studio that specialized in icon and UI design, I am uniquely qualified, Jesse writes, to comment on the Apple Musical Classical app. Um, look, if you're, if you're a classical person you probably already know this the big reasons quote have to do a lot with metadata and cataloging and if you haven't if you're just tipping your toe into classical music or if you're kind of curious about this or you're like why does this exist it is a fantastic read (laughs) uh and it talks about the joys of cataloging classical performances because you know you can be like oh i really like you know tchaikovsky's 1812 overture well there's like 300 different versions of it and identifying that (laughs) is kind of what the entire uh classical cataloging system is about indeed so um side note on hdmi cables 444 support on apple tv i was sitting there like why isn't four two zero enough for today? Uh, there's a nice article on chroma subsampling on ratings.com. Uh, we've talked about, more specifically, Rob's talked about it. I usually nod my head and go mm-hmm, um, because I I find subsampling is one of those things that gets intense very quickly. But it's really, you know, for PCs they do four 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 subsampling, and you know, ratings qualifies the visual impact on that as major. For movies, uh, it's four two zero. For sports, is four two zero. For TV shows, it's four two zeros and they also say for video games you know you can do 444 subsampling but the visual impact is minor so i guess the apple tv supports 444 so you can play games on the apple tv uh and have the full effect but it may not be worth buying a brand new cable and running it to get that unless you are particularly paying attention to your video quality no it's all about
1: color compression and yeah with the PC or a video game console, you technically Mm -hmm. could run that out with uncompressed color, which is something you generally don't find in any consumer device. Or uh, think of any flavor of Blu-ray or HDR disc. Uh, It's just like, look, uh, they use that color compression to save all the space. I think it's more important with your movies and TV shows and sports content like that would be to just, even though it's hard to do, is the, the bit rate's everything. That's why, given that if everything's being delivered, for the most part, as far as video content goes, in a 4.2.0 format, the, the most compressed color format available, then it becomes really kind of clear, in a sense, when you see something like your 4K Blu-ray disc versus the original stream of that through your favorite streaming provider, And the differences that can occur there with color and detail, it's just simply having a greater bandwidth or a greater bit rate can make a big difference overall. It's nice to see that these features are available, but in the case of 444 support on Apple TV, it's there, but what content are you actually looking at that, that started off and was delivered to you as uncompressed color? And the only thing that you mentioned uh, would be something like a video game where that it might have actually been delivered to uh, the client or in that case the Apple TV product, and it might be actually available in terms of delivering 444 or uncompressed color rather than uh, 420 that the video world has settled upon as good enough. Or even HDR video, it's 420 because of the bandwidth limitations. Uh, The short answer also is that we as human beings, generally, we see the high definition picture in a a very black and white sense. Uh, our, Our sense of detail is mostly colorless. And then the color information can be quite compressed because we have far fewer sensors for color in our eyes than we do the black and white detail, so to speak. There's a biological basis for the reason we squeeze the crap out of color, but we try to preserve the black and white detail information as much as possible, and uh, I'm not going to go down that anymore. You know what? I'll put a link to the Chroma subsampling article on ratings, like you mentioned, and and we'll leave it at that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a good plan. Eddie. saw something interesting over at soundandvision.com. They're doing uh, Kaleidoscape based movie reviews. Um, Now, if you haven't heard that name kaleidoscape uh before it's a company we talked about a bunch in the early days of hd nation oh so many years ago and they essentially have a server and system that allows you to have high quality videos available on demand in your house kind of like the system that rob put together uh for his own use um or any of number of you out there who have ripped blu-rays or uhd blu-rays to your system this followed the review of the Kaleidoscape server and system, quote a marriage made in movie heaven. Ends on with the Kaleidoscape Strato C movie player and Terra forty eight terabyte movie server. The system costs four k for the kind of the basic uh, streaming device, but you're going to need a few thousand dollars more for a Kaleidoscape Terra, Compact Terra, or Strato S to actually serve the movies. So you're looking at like six grand for six terabytes for 100 movies or uh, a whopping $26,000 for 88 terabytes uh, to fit 1500 4K movies um- i was kind of surprised because one of the things that came out in reading uh, some of the this series was that kaleidoscape has yet to actually do dolby vision or hdr 10 plus um you know beyond that i will say you know uh in terms of of everyday video performance uh without uh dynamic hdr uh, i've never seen anything less than flawless video from one of their demos these systems are spendy but they are designed to be fantastic um you know, com slash movie store to see what's available there. Or movie dash store, uh, com is the website. I, you know, I was kind of curious as to what the movies actually cost these days. But it occurred to me that if you have the money to spend, you know, 10 grand on a streaming system, you probably aren't caring what the movies actually cost to load onto that system. So convenience. Uh, so convenient. Convenience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And I've, I've used one of these systems in a, in a fully tricked out $2 million home theater. It's fantastic. You know, I think at this point, it would be nice for them to be supporting Dolby Vision or HDR 10 plus, but I'm sure that's something they will talk about in the none too distant future. So cool. Uh, goodness. Big shout-out to our patrons. Patreon.com slash AVXL. The people who contribute to AVXL via Patreon.com are the ones that make this show possible. You help us pay the bills here because uh, streaming actually does cost money. Uh, all the all the bits that get downloaded. So we've been, uh, as one of the things we've been doing, we're thanking everybody. Uh, we started with the very, very first patron on the show, and we uh, have worked our way up to December 20th, 2017 with Chris Westergaard, Sean E., and I'm sure I butchered that name and I'm sorry, Sean. Morgan Greenhal, Jim Donaldson, Andrew Terrell, and Mark Whitaker. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That brings us all the way up to January 31st, 2018. These people have been supporting the show ever since then, and we are grateful for your support via patreon.com slash avxl. Tuesday, next week, March 28th, is our next Patreon hangout, and we will send out some information on that at patreon.com slash avxl keep an eye on your email or check the patreon page um brian's got an awesome problem he writes robert patrick big fan of you guys since the dltv days man thank you uh, i'd love to get your thoughts on a set of speakers from my home office my budget's around uh two thousand dollars i currently have a pair of audio engine a2s connected to a monoprice ss W10, that's a subwoofer, which is pretty decent, served me very well, but I'm looking to step up in terms of sound quality. I don't mind upping the budget. As we all know, quality speakers can outlast a 1970s Land Cruiser. In terms of features, I don't need much beyond them being active. I'm of the opinion that fewer features means fewer things can break. I get that. Additionally, the more unique and weird the design, the better, as I really appreciate a speaker that can sound awesome and also look rad. I know Robert's a fan of the Kef LS50 Meta, which is a pair I'm looking for on eBay right now. Anyhow, thanks in advance and keep on spreading the AV enlightenment, Brian. One thing to think about, Brian, is uh, whether you want a like a powered monitor which is simple in the land cruiser sense of the word and probably has a basic input and power, but you're going to need something else to feed audio into it and adjust the volume. Um, classic example is this would be like the Cali audio LP six b twos that are sitting on my desktop right now, which are a fantastic bargain. I think it's like 240 to $300 for the pair. They are amazing. They may not be the best speaker. If you, if you want to blow your hair back and make your eardrums meet in the center of your skull but in terms of audio quality they're amazing um you know and but you have to have something that feeds the audio to them whether it is your your computer or your laptop or a discrete device or streaming device the other thing is something like uh, kefs ls50 wireless 2 or uh elax debut connect so i just got a pair of those in to take a look at or the the you know where where they are actually all in one kind of home speaker amplifier dax where they're designed to stream or send audio to them and they've thought about all of the things you want to do where if you just want to like connect them to the wi-fi and fire up your phone you are good to go um these are one of those things where, you know, a pair of Genelex can be thousands of dollars. Uh, you know, the Kefalos 50 wireless twos, those are about the powered version, um, are about $2,700 new. They're not too many of those showing up used at that point. Um, you know, for the ELAX debut connects, you're looking at something in the, you know, 350 used, 389 used to $600 new price range. Um, there's a lot to talk about here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ping Brian and ask him some more questions, and we will get more into this in the future. But there are some amazing inexpensive options. Again, the Cali audios are one of the most extraordinary speakers I've ever used. Uh, for the money you know there's a lot of love for the ls 50 wireless 2 and that has the advantage of being set up so that it is ready you know out of the box to stream from your favorite streaming services and uh, you're gonna have to do a little work a little diy to do that on a set of traditional powered monitors
1: right that was the first thing i would think of too is what are your sources yeah. what are you what is the use case for you on a day in and day out basis for your home office Like if you are always on Spotify or you have a ripped collection of audio CDs or whatever it's going to be, it's like, what's going to give you the easiest usage that will make you the happiest, at least as far as like for the ripped collection of audio, uh, Sonos makes that absolutely wonderful to deal with, with their app in particular. So there's, yeah, we'll we'll get some more details and we'll dig into this, but yeah, (laughs) a lot of good options on the table there though.
0: Without a yeah. doubt. It's funny. Like For these Cali audio speakers that are on my desktop, um, I use a JDS Labs Element that has a headphone jack out the front and a set of RGA, RCA jacks out the back. And I run the RCA jacks from that JDS Labs element, I hit a switch on the back and I go from the headphones to the desktop speakers. And then whatever I'm streaming on my desktop, you know, whether I am doing video editing, whether I am doing Spotify or Cobuzz or, you know, a bunch of FLAC files, you know, I purchased off of Bandcamp, there are options there. Um, that's super convenient. If you want them across the room, I would need to do something you know, that would be like a uh, Raspberry Pi or a Weem where there's a streaming device and you may or may not want to trigger those speakers. And I'm getting into the stuff we should be talking about in the future, not right now. So let me shift gears and move us forward. Um, what we're watching, Oh, it's been a crazy week in my house. Ted Lasso, The Mandalorian, uh, you know, the final season of Secession. I think all dropped this week. John wick four is coming out. Uh, this March has been an embarrassment of riches in terms of quality television to experience. Um, and, uh, (laughs) I'm, I'm so, so delighted to see Ted Lasso back and so terrified to see how they're going to navigate this season. Uh, the Mandalorian has been a hoot too. um, succession is terrifying, but the acting and the cinematography is fantastic. Uh, Got some news and some more speakers next week, including Definitive's latest and KEF's first THX certified Dominus speaker, uh, which is also packing their Metamaterial Absorption Technology or MAT. And uh, a couple of viewer questions and we'll get some more into that whole, how do you get audio to those powered speakers? And for anybody who's out there who are like, why would you do powered speakers? One of my favorite, I think, Reactions of all time was uh, the first generation Kef LS50 wireless. Uh, a friend of mine had a pair of those, brought him over to his buddy's house. His buddy had a fifty thousand uh, dollar setup, like a super high-end, fantastic, out of control. You know, top of the line audiophile nerdgasm kind of system, and they set up these LS fifties and they played around. They got the positioning correct on the stands. You know, and they were listening, switching between the super fancy system and the LS fifties, and and you know, his his friend was like, "Huh," kind of wondering what I spent the other forty eight grand for, and this is not always you know the way to make a. Mandalorian reference. But, you know, if you do not need a gigantic speaker that can do Dolby level, you know, Dolby reference level, i.e., making your eardrums meet in the center of your skull, collapsing your spleen with the intensity of your low end, uh, you know, and you want something that's convenient and simple, a lot of these powered monitors, these all-in-one home speakers, Allow you to have a fantastic audio experience without spending a lot of time going like, oh, I need a source, and I need an amplifier, and I need speakers. And, 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 and there's something to be said for, for keeping it simple and making it easy. I digress. What are you watching, man? I'm keeping
1: uh, an eye on spring training for MLB as the season's about to fire up officially here in a few weeks. Uh, other than that, motorsports, it's back in action, baby. We're talking motorcycles, Formula One cars, NASCAR, uh, it's, it's all available. There is, there is too much racing afoot at the moment. Uh, MotoGP is something I really want to dig into this season, if possible. In addition to, I think we're on our third F1 race already for the season. That's going well. Also, I'm reading up on the latest uh, Odyssey and Dirac calibration methodologies for the AVRs out there. For the folks with Denon receivers, uh, a couple of their flagship receivers, I believe, including the 3800, has been updated to add Dirac. I think it's called Dirac Live, where you can download an app and then pay the fee and then basically use that to link into your AVR and perform a additional calibration functions beyond the odyssey that it shipped with and i'm looking forward to testing that out i've got all of the equipment ready to go and i should be looking at that in the next couple of weeks with a couple of different systems actually it's pretty much everyone with one of those x 3800 receivers from denon uh ever since the (laughs) updates have come out recently uh Be it Odyssey. Odyssey has an advanced calibration mode now that you can use PC software with in addition to either... Is that the one that's like the
0: software is a couple hundred dollars?
1: Exactly. That's the one thing. And Dirac can go as high as, I believe, $450 uh, depending on which version you're going for. Uh, So, yeah, these are not impulse buys. It's like, well... Do I need to go beyond what's built into the AVR or not? And uh, the very first thing I'll be looking at on all these systems is, of course, the speaker setup, how they're positioned within the room, making sure that's as good as possible before we even touch any of this functionality built in. But I already had one person ping me who's like, oh, I bought the Dirac license. I am ready to go. Bring your notebook. Bring your (laughs) calibrated microphone. Get over here. I just want to roll with this. And I'm like, okay, we'll do that. And then another person who's kind of on the fence, it's like, do we have to spend the money? Uh, Either way, firmware updates are available for these receivers to actually not only tweak some fixes for existing calibration technologies, but if you've never considered that your AVR, a modern AVR, is effectively a computer With some amplification built in, do keep the software on those devices updated as well. Uh, There there have been a lot of updates, it seems, lately for a lot of devices I've been looking at. And uh, generally, they do add new features, but they also correct little issues that may have occurred that uh, you would no longer have to deal with if you updated your device. So keep that in mind for your home theater experience, be it a TV, an AVR, a projector. Actually, I'm not sure if I see too many projector updates with... uh, with firmware, ah, take that back. As soon as I say that, I can think of one or two now that added you know, features that weren't there <laughs> upon the shipping of the device when it first launched. But either way, firmware nice. firmware, people, it's there for a reason. And, and it can be uh, addressed in the later dates to uh, make your product
0: even better than it was when it shipped. Or with fewer bugs, so to speak. Really, I'm quirks. delighted you're going through this because... <laughs> You know, I—I I, part of me is really wants you to tell me I don't need to buy this. <laughs> totally,
1: and I just saw—at least with Odyssey in that 3800 receiver—they had corrected something related to subwoofers, uh, and I'm just looking at. Before we go any further, I want to do one of the calibrations with Odyssey and the latest firmware, and then at least on the 3800 and I think the 4800, they offer two presets, so you could do one with Odyssey and one with the rack if you really want to go all all out. Right. But if you were trying to do that with the PC-based software that gives you even finer, more granular control, yeah, man, it's like a, you could easily spend five to six, seven hundred dollars on just the software licenses alone if you wanted to go down both rabbit holes. But either way, I'm yeah. going to hopefully f-
0: see if you actually need to do it. I mean, it's nice. You also might need to... <laughs> you have to use uh, Odyssey's calibrated microphone, the one that, that they... I'm pretty sure you have to use the one that they actually sell for like 80 bucks.
1: I don't think that's required. It's just... It would be... I wonder really if you need that or not. That would be fun to do an A-B with because technically or at least according to Denon and others in Odyssey that the microphone that ships with your AVR was programmed and it has a calibration table specifically built into the AVR for that microphone anyway. It it would be nice to actually do some head-to-head comparisons between this to see what does spending the extra cash on say the PC software I mean, I know it gives you greater, finer controls, but
0: is it actually necessary for, the, for a good listening experience? And we'll see. We will see. It's interesting. According to the Odyssey manual, uh, the adjust sub-levels and measurement pages of the application allow selection of the microphone. At launch, the only microphone supported is the audio ACM-1H slash ACM-1HB that was included with the AVR. There you go. Alternative microphones cannot be supported because the measurement system depends on having signal directly into the AVR microphone input.
1: And in the case of Dirac, actually, you need a, a USB microphone that, and hopefully that you can also obtain the calibration table with to then apply that to... You can either plug it directly into the AVR or you can run it on your PC with the software and over the I will network say- connection
0: get the work done that way i'm looking at page 19 and it's showing a microphone that is absolutely not the microphone that shipped with the avr um, and reminding you to point the microphone directly at the ceiling using a tripod do not angle it do not pretend it's in the ear you know do not pretend it's in the microphone at the center of your pin eye it's supposed to be pointed at the ceiling yep and a quick shout out too, to the audio they
1: have done great interviews and mm. tech breakdowns as well with the Odyssey crew in addition to also keeping up with some of the Dirac methodologies. Nice. In particular for Odyssey, uh and being able to talk to some of their engineers and folks directly and go over best practices and things like that. It's worth checking out even if you're doing it yourself. Uh I think it's just that it's nice to hear some tips and tricks yeah. directly from the, the quote unquote horse's mouth, so to speak. Now I'm just curious of where that term actually comes from. I'm
0: not going to look that up right mouth. now. Yes. I'm like, yeah, I just said that. It's like. with know. that, ladies and gentlemen? Exactly. I don't want to know. Before we get into the etymology of words. Um, oh, my goodness. I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of AVXL. We'll see you next time.